Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message, you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, you could open them up to Luke chapter 1, 46 through to 55 is kind of the text I'll be starting from. And this morning I'm talking about Christmas and Kanye. The two go together, don't they? It's like a duh, it's so obvious. Why wouldn't you talk about Kanye at Christmas? I don't know if you've been living under a rock, but if you haven't, uh, you would have noticed in the news uh, on pretty much every feed somewhere that um, Kanye West has become a Christian and he's been holding these church services. Um, He's done a musical called Nebuchadnezzar. He's appeared at Joel Osteen's church, which is this kind of mega church in, uh, I think it's in Texas, isn't it? Um, He's done a mega church. Uh, And there, you know, he did this big performance and let everyone know that God can take it easy now because he's on the case. Um, You know. Anyway, so Kanye has become a Christian. So it got me thinking about celebrities and celebrity Christians and uh, what that means. Now, to be fair, you know, he's not the only one. There have always been Christians, uh, celebrities that have been um, Christians and uh, there currently are others besides Kanye. And the reception to the news, I think in particular with him, has been kind of mixed. Um, There's been at one end of the spectrum this kind of overwhelming excitement and um, acceptance and fawning over what a great thing this is and what a boon this is going to be to the, you know, Christian Christianity. Now God's got kind of celebrity endorsement and everything, you know, people are like, whoa, this is going to be fantastic. At the other end of the spectrum, of course, there's a lot of people who are just highly cynical and sceptical about the whole thing. So it begs the question, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And more importantly, what's it got to do with Christmas? So I guess, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? The short answer to that is yes. (laughs) But before we get into the pros and cons, I I want us just to understand that, look, it just is a thing. And what I mean by that is we all live in a particular time and place. Every person lives in a culture. We don't have to like that culture. We don't have to agree with everything about that culture, but we live in a culture. There are things about us and our culture here in the, West, in the West, in Australia, in the 21st century, that are particular and unique to us. And we have ways of communicating and connecting and understanding. That's just the way it is. And whether we like it or not, we in the church, if we want to get the message of the good news out there, if we want people to hear the claims of Christianity... We have to buy into that to at least some degree without compromising what is absolutely true and valuable to us. You understand what I'm saying in that? We can't just ignore it. You know, it'd be great if we could just say, look, you know, God just speaks for himself. The gospel speaks for itself. We're just going to put the claims out there and if people don't want it, that's it. It's just not that simple. In our culture, we are attuned to communicating in a very certain way. And you can go on the internet, you look at, you know, digital media. You know, it's in our face all the time and companies pay 
incredibly good money to find new and better ways of communicating people because there's so much visual noise and audible noise in our world that it takes something really unique to cut through. That's the marketplace, if you like, to put it crudely, in which we are competing. So it's not enough for us to simply go, everything about culture is bad. No, we have to live and breathe and work in this culture. And we have to, we have to be able to harness the good things about the culture, not compromise with the bad stuff, harness the good stuff in order to get the claims of Christianity out there. Are you, are you with me on that, right? Okay, you understand what I'm saying and all that. And this is just, I guess, the modern day version of what Paul did back in the first century. You know, he said, to the slave, I become like a slave. To the free, I become like a free. To the Greek, I become like the Greek. He was saying my methodology changes on who it is I'm trying to reach, but my message remains intact. So we have to be able to use the culture. And, and we, again, whether we like it or not, celebrities might be an attention grabber, something that piques people's interest that could actually serve a really good purpose. So is it a good thing? Well, yes, potentially. I mean, celebrities are people too, right? Celebrities need Jesus, Yes. Yeah? I mean, just at this very basic level, everyone needs Jesus. So when someone like Kanye puts a hand up and says, I want to be a Jesus follower, we should think that's a good thing, shouldn't we? Now, I know at the, the sceptical end of things, people are being cynical and they're saying, yeah, it's probably just him looking for another market, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. But who are we to judge, right? Who are we to judge? And these guys are subject to a lot more scrutiny than you and I ever will be. So even if they make these commitments and then go and behave in, in ways that we don't think reflects well on the gospel, well, I don't know about you, but I wasn't exactly a poster boy for Christianity when I became a Christian. Anyone else? And I'm still not a poster boy for Christianity. And I don't have all the scrutiny and all the publicity that goes along with that, right? So they're people and they need Jesus. So whenever they stick their hand up, we should not be cynical or sceptical about that. We should be glad because it is not our place to judge. In time, it will be seen for what it is, but let's just assume the best about people, yeah? You with me? Okay, let's just assume the best about people. The other thing that is potentially good about this is if their commitment, their decision to, to, to have faith in Jesus prompts just one other person who would not normally consider it to consider it, that's got to be a good thing too, yeah? And let's face it, these people have influence. They have influence with people. And again, we could, you know, we could debate whether that's a good or a bad thing, but they do have influence. So if someone, one of these people stands up and says, I've become a Christian, and someone out there says, hey, well, if he's become a Christian, maybe I should look into it, then we've got to say that's a good thing, right? So it's a good thing, potentially. But is it a bad thing? Yes, potentially. It's bad if we become dependent on celebrity endorsement in the sense that we feel like somehow we need to get it or that somehow it is a validation of the things that we do. Anyone here a celebrity? Yeah? Who's, who's a celebrity? Okay, yeah, Heather, all right. Anyone, anyone been an extra in anything on TV? Uh, I, I have. I've been, yeah, Chloe, yeah. Oh, she's on IMDb. Right, so Chloe's going on our website, okay. Anyone been in local theatre? Anyone been in the local paper? Not for theft, okay. <laughs> right, so, joking, joking. Look, you don't know, but you've, you've had a celebrity here the whole time. I was on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld in 1985. Most of you don't even know what that is, do you? 
That's why we have YouTube. Go to YouTube and Google Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, and then you'll know what a sad claim that just was, okay? <laughs> if our goal, or if, our, if, if we have this kind of need that, geez, you know, like if they're getting these people in, then maybe we need to in order to, to, to sort of make our mark or to validate what we do, then, then that's actually become a bad thing. The other thing I think it, it, it's a bad thing is if it upends the values of the kingdom. I mean, this kind of celebrity culture that we, we live in, it's, it's actually not a new thing. It's definitely a more pronounced, more amplified thing these days, but it's not a new thing. The world has always had a way of creating a kind of social hierarchy of people based on money or power or fame or position in society, hasn't it? The world's always had this kind of social hierarchy. Yes, it's more pronounced, more amplified, but it's actually not a, a new thing. Some animals have always been more equal than others. And we've even got an example of this in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is actually rebuking the uh, Corinthian church about the way they practice communion, why they celebrate the Lord's table. And if you've been here for a while, you've, you've heard me preach on this. But the problem is that they are giving preferential treatment to the rich people. And the poor people are being ignored and treated like second-class citizens. And Paul's pushback on that is this is not how the kingdom works. The Lord's table is, is set on, on, on flat ground because everyone stands around it equally. And in the church and in the kingdom, some people don't get preferential treatment over and above other people. In fact, if you really wanted to push it with the way the Bible takes it, the Bible almost invariably always comes down on the side of the underdog, yeah? It almost always comes down on if you're going to favour anyone, you favour the least, Right? And so there's Jesus talking a lot about people who, who just instinctively take the place of honour, who are moved to the place of dishonour, and people who sit in the places of dishonour who are moved into places of honour. So the kingdom is kind of inverted and upside down from our typical social structures and our value systems and the way we, you know, the, the sort of relational universe that we create for ourselves. Um, and so it would be a bad thing if in churches we start to find that people who occupy certain tiers of society who have money, who come from certain places, who occupy a place in the public consciousness, start to get preferential treatment over and above everything else, we're actually starting to violate some key concepts and, and values of the kingdom. Right, you with me on that one? So it could actually become a really bad thing. So what's it got to do with Christmas? Well, there's this not so subtle message in the way that the Christmas story played out back then. That in, we in our shiny kind of celebrity culture world would do well to keep front and centre right now. Uh, because it's a story that keeps us tethered to the kingdom that we're proclaiming. How does it do that? Well, firstly, uh, there are three ways I believe this story does this. The first is this. The first in terms of the person that God chose as the key player in this story, Mary. Mary, you know, she's an unwed teenager for a start, Right? What sort of place does that person occupy <laughs> in our social strata? Okay, not a very good one, okay? So there's Mary, but it's beyond that, okay? Mary, when she actually finds out she's pregnant and she goes to tell her cousin Elizabeth in this passage that we're looking at today, she goes there, they have this kind of interaction, and then Mary breaks into this thing that in the, our Bible is called Mary's Song. It's kind of her response to the understanding and the awareness now that she is carrying the Saviour of the world. And she says, my soul magnifies or glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me 
blessed. Now Mary wasn't being, um, wasn't being wrong and she wasn't being coy about her humble status. Mary was from a very, very humble family. She was part of what was known as the Anawim, the poor and the oppressed, the ones who were literally bowed down. And they were on one of the lower rungs of society. They were one of the nameless, faceless masses, the no ones of the world. They weren't on the who's who list of, you know, who's who in Palestine. They weren't on the A list. They weren't mixing it with the big wigs and the people who exercised power and influence. Mary was a literally a no one except to those in close proximity to her, probably just her family and maybe her neighbours. But when God was looking for someone through whom he could be instrumental in the coming, bringing Jesus into the world, he zeroed in on this girl from a class of people that no one cared about whatsoever. Now, contemporary wisdom back then, even now, would tell us that if you're going to launch a thing, if you're going to get a thing out there into the zeitgeist, into the public consciousness and make an impression, then the best way to do that, of course, is to, you know, go all out, market it to the hilt, spend a lot of money, go to the right people, celebrate it in the right places, get all the right endorsements, have all the right photos taken with all the right people. I know cameras didn't exist then, so please don't, you know, unpick this metaphor too far, but you get what I'm saying, don't you, okay? You know, get it out there in front of all the right people, the people with power, the people with position, the people with money, the people with pedigree. Because if you get it off to a great start like that in front of all the right people, that's going to give it credibility. But God says, no, I'm going to pick a no one from nowhere in order to do this thing. And Mary seems to see in her choice something prophetic, something that God is not just doing in her, but something God is launching through this baby in her into the world. He says his, she says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Why was Mary chosen? Out of all the people that could have been chosen, it wasn't because of her position in society. It wasn't because of her pedigree. It had nothing to do with any of that. It had to do with her posture. See, she says, the key criteria for favour with God has nothing to do with external positioning. It has everything to do with an internal posture to God, those who fear him. And the Anawim were known for two things. One, their incredibly low place in society and the oppression that was foisted on them. But secondly, their unrelenting faith and belief that God would one day deliver them. They were known for their faith and their faithfulness, even in difficult situations. And she goes on. Remember, this is her celebration song. Have you ever read this story in Luke? Um, and you, you know, I'm having a baby, and then she just breaks into this really weird song. Have you guys followed this in, in Luke? And you think, that's a really odd response to finding out you're pregnant. Like, especially the stuff you're talking about. Because as I say, Mary intuitively understands that what God is doing in her, the, the thing he is doing in her by choosing a no one from nowhere, is, is not just a one-off thing. This, is, this typifies this thing that is about to come into the earth. And she says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good, good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. I mean, why not just, hey, I'm having a baby? But it's like, no, 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 no. There's this revolution coming. This thing that God is doing is going to upend the way we see who's who in the world. God is going to establish his social order 
in the world. It's this prophetic pronouncement about what God is doing and how the old rules are going to be displaced and no longer apply. The proud and the powerful are going to be humbled and the humble are going to be lifted and the hungry are going to be fed while those who are well-to-do are going to be left empty. And she is the beginning of that. Who Jesus is entering the world through is a powerful message about the kind of world that God is birthing. The other thing was the place, the place that Jesus came from, okay, that stuck to him throughout his ministry. I was reading in the news um, about two weeks ago, uh, the best postcodes in Sydney, the top 10 best postcodes in Sydney. And they didn't just talk about the postcodes, they graded it in some way from like royalty down to A-lister or something like that. So if you lived in this particular postcode, you were considered Sydney royalty. I hate to break it to you, but it was not 2154. (laughs) All right? It was not 2154. Okay, so if you were up here, you were Sydney royalty. If you were number 10, well, you were still considered an A-lister. And again, on face value, you look at that and you go, this is ludicrous. But again... I don't know if this has been your experience or whether you've encountered this in any way, shape or form. But man, you know, we do live in a world, don't we, where where you come from can actually matter a whole lot, yeah? Anyone encountered that at all? Anyone bumped into that sort of thing? Where you come from can actually matter. Again, here we have the world's social system at play, the world's value system at play, how we place people in terms of what we believe they are worth. If you're from this postcode, you're up here. If you're from this postcode, you're down here. Why this is relevant to the Christmas story is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was from Nazareth. He was always known as Jesus of Nazareth. That moniker stuck to him like glue. So what? Well, there's this little interaction in the gospel, I think it's John, where there's this guy called Nathaniel, and someone's talking to Nathaniel about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Nathaniel's response is? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, short answer, yes, Jesus. But even back then, you had this mindset at play that, that no good thing was going to come from that area. And yet, and yet, when God chooses the family through whom he's going to bring Jesus into the world, he chooses people that are from this place, Nazareth. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Nazareth, okay? It was not a big place. It was so small, in fact, that it doesn't feature on most maps and isn't mentioned in most history. It was known for three things. Foreigners, fighting, as in war, and farming. That was the Galilee region. That was about it. The best way, again, to add credibility to something, if you wanted everyone to get everyone's attention and to get them to buy into this thing, would not be to have someone from Nazareth be the thing through whom you were bringing this thing. Again, you would have had Jesus from Jerusalem, Jesus from some other cosmopolitan capital city. There were plenty of them in the day where there was money and wealth and power 
um, invested. So again, the conventional wisdom says if you want to make a thing fly, get it around the right people, put the right pedigree around it, get the right postcode behind it, and then it's going to fly. Well, God does exactly the opposite thing. He brings in Jesus from Nazareth. See, if the only way you can get people to pay attention to you is to capitalise on your pedigree and your postcode, you could legitimately question why people are interested in you at all. And I think this is part of the thing that God was doing. If people are going to buy into this, they're going to buy into it for the right reasons, not just because it's the latest, coolest thing to do that everyone else is doing. You're going to buy into this, you're going to have to really want to buy into it because it certainly doesn't have any of the pedigree around it that some of this other stuff has. And then finally, there were the people that Jesus, uh, that God picked to be the first-hand witnesses of what he was doing, who were going to be the endorsers of this thing. Was it the celebrities of the day? No. Was it the priests or the religious people? No. Was it the political class? No. Was it the rich people? No. Who did Jesus choose, or who did God choose to be the first-hand witnesses and endorsers of, his, of the birth of Jesus? Shepherds. Shepherds. Angels appear to them out in the fields and tell them, this is going on in Bethlehem, you need to get yourself over there. They do that, and then it says, when they had seen him, they spread the word. Why is that important? Well, let me tell you a couple of things about shepherds in Jesus' day. One, they were the bottom rung of society. They were actually on the same level as tax collectors and dung collectors, right? That's the status that they occupied of the day. In the Mishnah, the Jewish oral law, they were repeatedly called incompetent. In other words, these people look after animals because they can't do anything else. And worse, the Mishnah says that if by chance you were to come across a shepherd who has fallen into a pit, you're under no obligation to help them get out of that pit. They do, they're stupid enough to fall into it. They deserve to stay there. You're starting to get a picture of how highly regarded these people were in society. They had no civil rights whatsoever. And the most important thing to remember in this story, they could never, they were forbidden to be called on as witnesses in a court of law. I don't even know what the equivalent of that person would be today, but it would be like using the lowest, most unscrupulous, most detested people in society to be the ones who go on telly and endorse your product. You know, hi, I'm Terry, the serial killer, and I strongly stand by whatever Adrian's doing. You know, <laughs> thanks. How well would that go down? Okay, well, in some cases, probably, yeah. Um, you couldn't even buy anything off these guys because it was assumed that it would have been stolen goods. That's the place they occupied. And yet when God decides that he needs people not only as witnesses, but he needs the testimonial, he needs the endorsement. He picks people who by law and by culture are never to be trusted or listened to at all. And you know what else I love? That Luke actually puts that in the story. I mean, remember why Luke is writing his gospel? He's trying to convince his friend Theophilus that everything he's writing is a true account so that Theophilus can believe in Jesus. And he starts with, oh, and guess who was there and saw the birth? Shepherds. 
How do you think Theophilus felt about that? They would have been much better off putting someone far more important, someone with, at least in cultural terms, far more credibility. But no, he puts shepherds in there. He could have left that detail out, but he puts it in because they are front and centre of this story, again, telegraphing to us a really incredibly important part of the story. So we have this person with no pedigree, we have a postcode with no prestige, and we have people with no credibility whatsoever. And they're all these key ingredients of the Christmas story, arguably one of the most important stories of all time. So what can we take away from this? Well, the first is this is that the medium is actually the message. The way something is communicated is, in fact, the message itself. Now, we, we know this, again, intuitively. Um, let's take a car ad, for example. You see a, a car ad, like a, a nice high-end car or a sports car or you know, a coupe or some cool little car. They don't just put the car up there with all the specs, do they? You know, five-star safety rating, good fuel economy, you know, relatively comfy, it's got a, you know, Bluetooth, CD player, you know, da-da-da tape deck um you know they don't just put all the the stats up and go right so we've convinced you it's a good product buy it no 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 they have that car driving down a coastal road with young beautiful people you know having fun and living the life don't they right because what they're what they're what they're hoping here is you know you're not purchasing that car you're that's who you want to be you're purchasing that lifestyle you you but who knows that doesn't work Right? I just don't look like any of those people in the ads. And my hair definitely doesn't blow in the wind, right? But that's what they're doing. They're, they're, there's, there's the buy the car message, but there is this subliminal subtext to it, which is, and this is the life that comes with our car, isn't it? This is, what, this is how advertising works. Advertising is never selling you a product. It's always selling you something far deeper. It's always trying to tap into some desperate need or desire that you have. That's the thing they're selling you. So then you buy their product as what you believe to be a means to that lifestyle. So we see this stuff all the time. We know that in all advertising, in all stories, in all messages, there's a subtext. And it's the same with the Christmas story, the subtext. It's not just the story. Here are the details about the story. When you analyse this story and you see how it plays out and the people involved and the places and, and, you know, the people that were witnesses and how God is consistently picking the no ones of this world, you start to see there is a very powerful subtext in this story that tells us something about who God values and the world that God is building. And it is not a world that is built on power, prestige, or fame, or celebrity. Those, you, know, you can have those things, they're fine. But in God's economy, they're not the most important thing. They are not the most important thing at all. So we just need to remember that as we navigate to reach our culture and the world we live in with the message that we have, we have to be careful that some of the means we use to engage, to communicate, to connect uh, with people doesn't undermine the message that we're trying to bring because it could so easily happen again if we say to people hey it's all about Jesus but then we have reserve seating and we have celebrity status and uh, you know some sort of um, hierarchy within the church about who gets preferential treatment that's another story altogether that we're telling people and we need to be really careful about that if our messaging focuses on and harnesses all that's hip, cool and current, then we shouldn't be surprised if people draw their own conclusions about what Christianity is about from that. The other thing in this, in reaching our current culture, we have to make sure 
that we keep our kingdom culture. Remember, everyone needs Jesus from princes to paupers. There's no arguing that. And as I said at the beginning, when someone like Kanye makes a commitment, it's a good thing and it should be celebrated and it can certainly yield some really good fruit. But as long as we celebrate equally, as long as we celebrate equally, Sally, the single mum from Seven Hills, makes a commitment, we should jump up and down in the same way that we jump up and down when Sienna, the interior designer from Mossman, makes a commitment, right? Now, I know I'm using, you know, I get latitude with this, you know, why? Because I'm from Mount Druitt, right? Does anything good come from Mount Druitt? Yes. <laughs> All right? That settles that argument, doesn't it? But I get away with this crap because that's where I'm from, right? I get away with it. I can say this stuff. Other people can't because you're brought up in hoity-toity land. Right. But anyway, <laughs> I'm joking, okay? I'm joking. But I'm not. Uh, I'm getting healing. Um, little bit by little bit. I'm getting, I'm getting healing. But man, I tell you what, growing up where I grew up and the prejudice that I encountered growing up, I know of what I speak when I say this stuff. I encountered unbelievable prejudice growing up, um, even just as a white guy in Sydney because of my postcode, which sounds weird, but I did. I married a girl from the eastern suburbs to try and make up for it, um, but I've just dragged her down to my level. Um, she's become more of a Westie. I rubbed off on her. I love Blacktown, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so guess what I'm saying there? You know, by all means, let's harness the best of our culture and use it wisely to try and communicate the message of Jesus to people. But let's not lose our kingdom culture. Let's honour the, the people that God honours. Let's always have a completely level playing field around the cross and around the communion table where no one gets preferential treatment. And that, again, if we're going to err in any direction, we err towards those who are least and who are overlooked and who are forgotten, yeah? So if we're going to have reserved seating in church, it needs to be for those people. You are our honoured guests because out there you don't get that treatment in the kingdom. That's exactly what you get. And the first shall be last, yeah? The first shall be last. And, the, and those who are greatest shall become servant of all. So those of you from really nice postcodes, get your servanthood on, Okay? All right, because that's what we do. Finally, God doesn't need celebrity endorsement. I love Paul's um, opening statement in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, and it's something I've, I've often read over and over again because I think it's so important. But I'll, I'll just give you the, the, the rundown. He's talking to them and he says, brothers and sisters, think of who you were when you were called. And then he goes on to say, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were noble birth, but God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become our wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. See, the story is never what can someone do for God. The story is always what has God done for me, right? That's it. That's the testimony. That's the validation. That's the story. Always. Not what do I bring to the table to help God along in his thing. You know, God does use us. God, God you, you know takes whatever we offer and uses it for his purposes but I'm not adding my I'm not adding credibility to what God does it has credibility the credibility of what God does is seen in transformed lives that's where it's at 
So if we want to have an endorsement about anything, it shouldn't necessarily be, and again, I'm not precluding this, as I say, you know, we might have people who are in the local paper from every now and then, and we'll get them up on stage and we'll make a fuss of them, you know, but, but, but the endorsement that we need is from every person saying, this is how Jesus has changed my life. Yeah? That's, that's how it works. We don't need someone who has some massive profile, okay, and don't, don't get me wrong, this is not, this is not some sort of weird jealousy about churches that do. Good on them if they do. That's great. Okay? But that's not the sort of endorsement we're looking for. The endorsement we're looking for a change lives and a transformed society because we are here. That's the only endorsement that we actually need. Like I said, the story itself plays out in a particular type of message. A person with no pedigree from a place with no prestige, endorsed by people who don't count. These are the people God uses to bring his kingdom to earth and his kingdom into being. Now, we don't get the same attention, we don't have the same platform, but you know what? We all have the same grace at work in us, every single one of us, and that is what really matters. And I believe that is one of the most powerful messages in the Christmas story. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are from. You have the same grace at work in you. And if God can launch that story through that girl and through those people from those places, imagine the stories that he could write through us. We don't have to be the most powerful. We don't have to be the richest. We don't have to be the cleverest. We don't have to, to, to be the most famous. We just have to be us. Because that's all God ever needs in order to do amazing things. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, thank you, everyone. We're going to take communion now. And again, a beautiful reminder that this table sits on very level ground because we all come around this table because we all need Jesus and we all stand in the same grace. So let's go and take it. Everyone is welcome. It's at the sides and the back. Please go and help yourselves and we'll get the team up. Thanks.